be back in the book of Mark chapter 1 this morning. Today we get to finish chapter 1. And if we, uh, if we do a little math on that, we've got 16 chapters. We've been in Mark for about two months. <laughs> We're going to be in Mark for a little while, it seems. <laughs> but that's great, because there's so many wonderful things in this uh, wonderful gospel, so many things to learn about Christ, so many things to learn about what it means to follow after Him. I don't know if you all remember when uh, Chuck Norris jokes were a thing. Were, they, they, they were a thing. There's, it's, it's less a thing these days. Some of my favorites that I can remember are, you know, Chuck Norris can slam a revolving door. Uh, when Chuck Norris does a push-up, he actually doesn't push himself up, but he actually pushes the whole earth down. Chuck Norris disproves the theory of evolution and natural selection because if it really were survival of the fittest, he'd be the only one left. It's not, uh, it's not my habit to begin sermons with, uh, with jokes. And I'm even suspicious of the practice usually, but there is, there is a point to this today. We do right, rightly recognize that these things are, they're silly jokes, right? Like they're funny, we, we, we crack them, and they're great jokes. Right? I, just, I just enjoyed them for a long time, uh, enjoying these uh, Chuck Norris jokes. But Chuck Norris, he was once a legendary figure, but we aren't that far away today from Chuck Norris completely disappearing from public consciousness, right? Most of today's children, if, like, if I don't tell my kids who Chuck Norris is, they probably will never encounter the concept of who Chuck Norris is, right? It's just, it's just reality. It's just the way time works. It's hard to believe Chuck Norris is currently 82 years old, and there will be a day when Chuck Norris will pass away. And despite what all of our jokes say about him, when he dies, he will stay dead. <laughs> You're laughing. <laughs> That's the joke that gets you to laugh now. <laughs> it's a reality. <laughs> Take a turn. It is, it is the reality that that is what's going to happen. As, as incredible as Chuck Norris was, or at least as he was made out to be by TV, he is a mere human being, and he doesn't hold a candle to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And as we are moving through this portion of this gospel, gazing upon Christ and his early ministry and what he has done, he has burst onto the scene in an incredible way. He's been demonstrating that he is someone with legit power and legit authority. We see him proclaiming a gospel of entrance into the kingdom of God. He calls his disciples and they follow him. He's teaching, and when he teaches, it's clearly as someone with authority. And he commands demons, and they must obey. He heals illnesses and disease, and he sets his agenda, and he is the one who, ter who determines what he's going to do. He's laser-focused on his mission to proclaim the message of repentance and faith. But as we move along, he's not just a figure who commands authority and just demands servitude. No, he, he cares for people. He proclaims a message of, of how one can enter into the kingdom of God. He calls his disciples so that he can send them out and minister to others. And as he heals, he demonstrates his power and authority, yes, but he also shows his love 
and compassion for people. Jesus cares about people. And as we come into this final section of chapter 1, we see one more area over which Jesus has authority. Jesus has the authority to make someone clean. And we see the compassion of Christ expressed yet again. Let's read our text, Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand, and he touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone. But go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in the desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. As we consider the details of this text, there's a few things that we need to understand that will just aid our understanding and aid our study of this text. First, we see that this man, it says that he was a a leper. A, A leper came to him. This is one who has leprosy, and today we're aware of a disease that's called Hansen's disease that is associated with the disease of leprosy. It's it's a flesh eating disease. There's a bacteria that gets into the skin, it would deaden your nerves, and eventually you would You would literally lose your fingers, your limbs, as it would eat away at your body, and eventually it would cost you your life. In the days of Christ, there's no known cure for this disease. Now, if we were to examine all the places of Scripture that talks about leprosy and and consider all the different ways it describes it, Leprosy is almost used as like an umbrella term for many different skin diseases that existed in those times. Not all of it would have been considered Hansen's disease that <coughs> excuse me <coughs> that would eat away at your flesh. <clears throat> but there would be different diseases, different things that would affect the skin in different ways. That would all kind of fit under the umbrella term of leprosy. It was used more of as like a catch-all term rather than a specific disease terminology. But that being the case, all the skin skin diseases that were present were considered to be contagious and, more importantly, perhaps, defiling. The Old Testament law had specific instructions for the people on how they were to treat and how they were to behave and act in light of the fact that these diseases existed. In the book of Leviticus chapter 13, we have a lengthy instruction about how a priest should be examining someone. If if there's a suspected case of leprosy, he's to look, and there's to look at the rash and to see if it's this color or that color. Is there hair growing in the rash, and what color are the hairs? And it's looking at all these things, and it sounds kind of gross, and it kind of is, but all of that served a very important purpose. 
And we see in Leviticus chapter 13, beginning with verses 44 and following, after giving these lengthy instructions about how the priest is, to what they're to look for, and all these things, if, if the conclusion was that it was leprosy, we have these instructions. He is a leprous man. He is unclean. The priest must pronounce him unclean. His disease is on his head. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Just as a brief side note, sometimes we look at some of these Old Testament laws and these instructions and we can, there are times where we scratch our heads like, why is that, why is that there? Uh, what's the use of all of that? And, and there's a lot of excellent principles that can be gleaned from these texts that get that God's law for Israel was, was a good and wise law. And we are not bound to Israel's law. This was the law of Moses given for the people of Israel. We believe that we are the church and we are distinct from Israel. We are under the law of Christ. And yet, all Scripture is profitable for us. And there is good principles that are in the law and good wisdom that we can glean from these passages that are helpful for us today. And Paul himself says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, now the law is good if one uses it lawfully so we can learn great things from the law, even though we're not under the law, and we're under the law of Christ. And there's lots of great wisdom for how to treat contagious diseases that we find in this text. So that's just a little bit of a side note to just remind us that there is good value in, many, in all of the Old Testament law. But as we read the Levitical text, the text we see that leprosy was a serious thing. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. As long as he had the disease, he was a functional outcast from society. Now, if the disease did heal, and we would read in chapter 14 the instructions about how an individual was to go through ritual cleansing and how the priest would examine him and he would do all these things and walk him through the purification process. But the only time we find documented cases of leprosy being healed in Scripture, it's, it doesn't clear up on its own, but rather it heals through a miraculous healing. We see this all throughout the Bible. We think of Miriam when, when she challenged the authority of Moses and she broke out in leprosy. And that was a sign to the people of God's judgment upon them. And, and it took Moses praying for her and a miraculous work there for her to be healed. We think of Naaman who had to dip seven times in the Jordan River, right? There was a miraculous thing that had to occur there for him to be healed of his leprosy. The only way that leprosy was cured in the biblical text is through a miraculous healing because the ancient world had no cure for these diseases. Once you had it, you were doomed to live out your life as an outcast and anytime you were around others, you had to continually remind them of what you were. Unclean, unclean. 
I don't know how many of you have seen the 1960 film Swiss Family Robinson with John Mills and Dorothy McGuire. There's a scene in that film where they're trying to gather some, just some supplies from the wreckage of the ship that's been shipwrecked. And they're there and they see on the horizon coming a ship and it's a pirate ship coming to plunder and loot the ship. Well, they're, they're trying to figure out what they can do to, to defend themselves, to protect themselves because, of course, pirates don't have great reputations, Right. Well, all of a sudden, the pirate ship that was coming near quickly turns around and starts sailing the opposite direction. What happened? Well, the father had ran up the Black Death flag as a warning, trying to scare off the pirates, and it had the desired effect that they saw that flag and they realized, no, that's, that's a contagious disease. I don't want any part of that. We don't want that on our ship. And so they sailed away. Well, that is the effect that walking around and continually shouting out, unclean, unclean, that would have had that effect. When you would see this individual wearing their, their, their torn clothes and their, their hair grown out and, and just living as they were, shouting out, unclean, everyone would give them a wide berth around them because they don't want to catch the contagion. They'd be unwilling to approach or interact with you, certainly unwilling to touch you because they do not want to catch the disease as well. So you, must, so you can imagine, this is, this is what we've got going on here. This, this leper who is living in this way, that this is what he's used to. Anytime he's around people, he has to continually shout out, unclean, unclean. And now here he comes before Jesus Christ. Now this man, in approaching Christ in this manner, he's breaking all the protocol, Right? We don't see him coming before Christ and saying, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. No, he, he, he comes before him and he kneels before him. And he certainly acknowledges his condition, right? He says in his, in his plea, he says, you can make me clean. He recognizes his own impurity. But he would have been taking upon himself a bit of a risk in approaching Christ in this way and, and causing a risk to others if his disease is not able to be addressed. But look at what drove him to his Savior. Look, look at what he says. First, first, we see a desperate man. This is a desperate man. Look how the text describes him. It says, a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling before him, and he said it to him, now, those three words that I'm going to highlight here, imploring, kneeling, and said in the ESV, saying, it is a participle. In the Greek, those are all present active participles. Imploring, kneeling, saying. And I'm not trying to get too uh, grammatically technical today, but, but this is in the section where most of the verbs in this section are indicatives and aorist. But here is a string of present active participles. So this has the effect of, of demonstrating the desperation in this man. Like he is absolutely desperate before Christ. He comes, he begs Christ for his life. He's imploring him. He's, he's entreating upon him. He's begging him for his life. He's a desperate man. Second, look at what he says. He says, if you will... You can make me clean. If you will. This 
This man is a man of faith. Notice he doesn't say, if you can, please do this. As if he's questioning whether Jesus has the ability. No, he has the faith that Jesus can. He, he, he says, you can do this. I, I know you can do this. It's not a matter of ability, but a matter of willingness. If you will, if you so desire, if it would please my Lord, you can make me clean. This is a man who is also self-aware. He seems to have an accurate understanding of his condition. He's, he doesn't say, well, if you are willing, you can make me well. Like, you can cure my disease. As if he just needs physical healing. Well, he does need physical healing. That's a reality. Whatever skin disease that he has, there's that bacteria there that does need to be addressed. But the issue is more than a mere skin disease. In the other accounts that we've seen so far of Jesus healing individuals, it, it speaks of it as that, as healing of an illness or a sickness or various diseases. When Peter's mother-in-law had a fever, it says that Jesus raised her up, and the text says that the fever left her. When the crowd would gather together, the text says that he healed many who were sick with various diseases. There's, there's the highlighting the reality of there's a disease, there's a physical issue going on, and Jesus is healing that person. But when it comes to this man, and when he comes to Christ, he knows that his condition is not merely one of physical illness, but also resulted in ritual uncleanness according to the law. And that seems to be his primary concern. That seems to be his primary concern. Yes, he is he is he has this disease and it is it is killing him physically, but he's unclean. He's cut off from his people. He's lost access to the temple and to the sacrifices and he desperately wants to be restored. can't help but think about how often we, we so often come to Jesus and think that, that we have something to offer Him. Uh, that there's something good within ourselves. And, and the, gospel, the, the gospel bids us come, and it bids us to come as we are and to receive grace and forgiveness. And so we do so, but often forgetting that as we are means dead in our trespasses and our sins with nothing but filthy rags and rubbish to offer our Lord. And even after we come to faith and receive His salvation, when we, you know, we, we can have the mentality that as we, as we come together as a church, or even when we just simply go to our Lord in private prayer, that we often come without realizing how desperate and how dependent upon the Lord we truly are. We think of ourselves as independent individuals, but we're not. We are dependent upon the Lord for every breath. We do not realize how desperate and dependent we need it to be. And in reality, we really are. We don't often come with an accurate picture of our own condition. When we come to our God in prayer, 
Do we make our requests in faith? Do we trust that God is able to meet the needs of the moment? Do we trust that, that our God wants what's best for us, knows what's best for us, and is able to bring it about within our lives? And it seems as though this man had that level of trust because though knowing that Jesus had the ability, he was appealing to his willingness to do so. Seemingly willing to accept if the answer might be no. Well, this man comes in great faith and he begs Jesus for his life. And now let's see the response of our Lord. It says that he was moved with pity. He stretched out his hand and he said to him, I will be clean. Now, I have to take a, a slight detour uh, this morning from this text. Depending on your translation, your text might say moved with pity or moved with compassion. Or if you happen to be reading a text like the NIV or the NET, you might be surprised to see moved with indignation or becoming angry in the text. Or maybe your Bible has a note about that as a possible, uh, a possible aspect of the text there. Well, here is a place in the Scriptures where we have what's called a textual variance. There are different manuscripts that, as we discovered the book of Mark and reading through, that there is a, a different word in this location, in this place, in the text. There are some variants, many variants, that say he had compassion, moved with pity. Then there are a handful of texts that speak of indignation as well. Now, last week in our Sunday school, as we were going through uh, our series on apologetics, we talked about the issue of the transmission of the text, and is, has the text been faithfully preserved for us in dealing with these issues of various Bible manuscripts with variant readings? Like there's, they don't all say the exact same thing in every portion. And skeptics are going to look at that and say, see, you can't trust the Bible because there's different things in these different manuscripts. You don't know which one is original. And so we have to be armed and prepared to understand how can we respond when, when people make those kinds of accusations against us. Well, the truth is that in this text, we have an excellent example of why we can have such a high degree of confidence in the Word of God. On the face, it does appear to be a pretty significant change, Right? The difference between being moved with pity and compassion and being moved with indignation, that seems like two different concepts, very different concepts, and they are different concepts. Sometimes when there are textual variants, the, the two Greek words look very similar, so we can look at that and say, oh, okay, I see how they could have made that mistake. It's just one letter different or one stroke different, and it's an entirely different word. Well, that's not the case here. In this case, they are two very different words that don't even look the same. But let's just consider for a moment how we would understand this text, considering each variance, and see how that helps us have confidence in the Word of God. The original word, if the original word is pity or compassion, here we have another example of the heart of Christ. We see that he cares for humanity and our suffering, and, and that when one comes to him in faith, that he acts in accordance with his promises. The heart of Christ. 
On the other hand, if the original word is indignation, we would have to ask the question, well, with whom or with what is he indignant? What is that indignation addressed to? As you, we read the text, I, I, I would be I would not feel comfortable ascribing that level of indication of indignation to the man himself. That that doesn't seem to fit with the way Jesus interacts with him. It seems best to understand that indignation would be directed at toward this man's condition. As if Jesus is is responding to the consequences of living in a sin-cursed world, that it bothers him that there is so much suffering. And if that is the case we would see the heart of Christ, that he cares for humanity and our suffering, and that when when one comes in faith to him, that he acts in accordance with his promises. We see the heart of Christ. In either case, the understanding of this text is nearly identical, even if there is slight nuance between the two concepts. So even if we struggle in understanding of what is the original word, and we we can't have 100% confidence, some might say, we can have 100% confidence that the original meaning is retained, that it reflects the heart of Christ and his care for humanity. Most variants in in different places in Scripture are, are much more simple to wrestle through than this one is. So when someone says, oh, there's so many variants that we can never know the original, that we can know with confidence, that's just simply not true. Most are easier than this, and even with this one, the meaning isn't greatly impacted. So we can have great confidence about the reliability of the Scriptures. Now, I'm going to that's the detour. I just wanted to deal with that, give us confidence again in the, the word that we have. Returning to the text at hand, there's a few more details for us to catch within this text. I'm just going to roll with what I have in the ESV here. Moved with pity or moved with compassion. He has the care for this man. He sees his plight and is moved. Our Lord cares. He is grieved when we experience the consequences of living in a sin-cursed world. And in this text, Jesus reaches out and he touches the man saying, I will be clean. Now sometimes we can read over that text and we see that Jesus reaches out and and touches him and that can just seem like a throwaway detail for us. Like it's not that important to the unfolding of the story. But this is in reality is a huge deal. This man is unclean. He's got leprosy. It's a contagious disease. Jesus, you shouldn't be touching that guy. I mean, we can all remember, even just a a couple of years ago now, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, how the whole world shut down and and we didn't know what was going on. We didn't have details and understanding of how significant this disease was. So there were no public gatherings, right? Everyone was spacing apart, social distancing. Oh, you got to have six feet in between each other. No shaking hands. We're all wearing our masks and everything because we don't want to catch your disease, right? We, We didn't know what we were dealing with. And sometimes we can, might scoff at some of those things now, but we didn't know what we were facing. And so we were taking steps 
to protect, and many people lived in fear that just being within arm's reach of someone could result in catching a disease that would kill you. Well, think about that level of stigma about touching a man with leprosy. And doing so would not only risk the contagion, that, that you too might be infected by this thing, but it would also render you unclean and in need of purification yourself. And yet, Jesus touches him. He touches him and he says, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was clean. As I was studying this text, it was this verse that, that made me think of all those silly Chuck Norris jokes. You know, when Chuck Norris goes swimming, he doesn't get wet. The water gets Chuck Norris, right? When Jesus touches a leper, he doesn't become unclean. He cleanses the leper. He eradicates the leprosy. He purifies the corruption that is in that man, and he removes it completely from him. This is a powerful moment of the authority of Christ and his power. He sees the plight of that man and he does what is requested of him, not only healing him physically, but cleansing him. Be clean. We see what Jesus does next. He says that he, he sternly charged him and sent him away, say no, saying, say nothing to anyone but show yourself to the priest, offer your sacrifice. That's a little bit of a surprising turn of events there. It's like, okay, we have this healing moment. Now Jesus, he, it says he sternly charges him. That's a very strong word, and in some contexts, it can communicate the concept of displeasure with someone. It doesn't always have to communicate that idea, but in some contexts, it does. It, but it is a very strong word. It speaks of a, a prohibition here. Jesus is forbidding him to do something. And we see, we see something similar just in our previous paragraphs as Jesus is casting out the demons and he silences them, right? And the text says that he silenced them because they knew him. So it's best to understand as we think of this Jesus, his instructions about being silent. His, his purposes as he's silencing the demons are likely to be similar with his purposes here, asking this man or forbidding him, commanding him, don't say a word. Why does he do that? Again, as we move through this text, Jesus is about establishing his own identity in his own time. Right? If, the, if the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah and they're looking for a great political leader and Jesus is not that, that's not what he's come to do. He's establishing his own identity and his own purposes also in his own time. And if his identity is established by others, and if it is established in a time frame of which he is not designed, he will not have that to be. And so he gives these instructions to this man to show himself to the priest and offer the appropriate sacrifices. But we see that he is going to be disobedient to Christ's command to be silent, and we don't know whether or not he eventually went and showed himself to the priest or not. 
but we do see is going to be disobedient to Christ about being silent. But I want us to notice one more detail about Christ's instruction before we see what the man does. He tells him to show yourself to the priest and offer the cleansing for what Moses commanded. And there's that last phrase, for a proof to them. For a proof to them. We could also translate it as for a testimony, for a witness to them. Well, what's Jesus doing here? Jesus wanted this man to go before the priest to show himself. And that was, again, this was in fulfillment of that Levitical law, Leviticus 14. All right, this is how you determine whether or not the leprosy truly has been cleared away. So he's doing that so that he can go through the cleansing process. He can re-enter society again. So you might say, oh, yeah, it's just about that. It's just that that's what's going on there. Jesus just wants the, the priest to verify. Well, the priest did need that necessary proof that this man was well and that he could approach the temple and do sacrifices once again. But I think there's more going on here. Jesus wants the priests to know this man didn't just heal on his own. Right? This wasn't something that just cleared up. That Jesus was the one who made him clean. There's one commentary I read this week that put it this way, and I really liked the way it was phrased. The priests could only declare someone to be clean, but Jesus actually made the man clean. The priest could examine it, and he can look at it, and he can say, yes, I see that you are now clean. But it is Jesus Christ and his healing at touch that actually made the man clean, actually purified him and cleansed him from this infirmity. And so Jesus, as he's demonstrating his authority to cleanse people of their impurities and to make them clean, this was a testimony to the priest, to the religious leaders of the day, that he has arrived. That the Messiah has come. Well, as we have seen, the, the man doesn't do what he's told, right? Perhaps, again, perhaps he did make it to the priest. We don't know. But he, he doesn't obey Jesus' command to be silent. But he goes and he, he tells everybody about it. And in some ways, I look at that and say, well, I can hardly blame him. I mean, you'd just been cleansed from leprosy, right? You just had a disease that doomed you, you had to live as an outcast all your days and probably to die in that condition, and now you've been clean. Of course you want to tell people, right? And really, as you read the text, I, I, don't, get the, I don't get the sense that, that the text itself is seeking to view the man in a negative light as a result of that. I mean, he's just, he's over the moon, overjoyed about his newfound life. But nevertheless, Jesus did have his reasons for commanding silence, and the result of him, the result that we see in the text of spreading the news everywhere may reveal Jesus' motive in trying to tell him to be quiet. It says that Jesus could no longer en enter a town openly, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. So this limits Jesus's mobility. It limits Jesus's movements. <clears throat> well, here we are. Now that's the end of chapter one. 
There's a few things that I want us to consider from this text by way of application as we, as we just consider what we see in this text. As we conclude with chapter 1 of Mark. First, consider this. Consider how the man came to Christ. He came in faith, and he came rightly understanding his condition. He believed that Jesus could make him clean. Do we believe that for our lives? Do you believe that Jesus has the answers, that Jesus has the authority, that Jesus has the power to whatever it is that you are facing within your life? This man wasn't just looking for a physical healing. He was looking to be clean. Of course, the whole concept of of clean and unclean, there was a practical purpose for that within the law, a practical reality that that was designed for a protection for the Israelites against diseases and such to limit the spread of contagion, to to limit all those sorts of things. But it also served to make them aware that they're not, not just a physical impurity, but spiritual impurity as well. And we need to be made spiritually clean. We need Christ to cleanse us from our sin. Our hearts are black with sin, and it is only Christ and His power that can cleanse that away, to take out the heart of stone and and give a heart of flesh in its place, to wash away our filthy rags. Only Jesus can make us clean. Only Jesus can teach us how to live our lives in such a way that would be pleasing to Him, how to, how to break free from, from the issues that we face within this life. And I challenge us, do you believe that Jesus can help you do that? Do you believe that Jesus is sufficient and His Word is sufficient not just for our salvation but for our sanctification as well? What I'm about to say can be challenging to hear in our culture, but today there is an entire multi-billion dollar industry that exists that deals with the realm of what is called mental health. But the reports and the studies and the things that we show that it really isn't making anyone any better. Our society is more depressed, more anxious, and more troubled than it has ever been, despite all the different things, all the pharmaceuticals, all the therapy, all the things that are out there. And I don't say that by way of wholesale condemnation of those who genuinely desire to help people. And I don't say that out of wholesale condemnation of all the different forms of counseling and things that are out there. I do believe that there can be elements of common grace that can be found in different places. But if our counseling is devoid of Christ and His Word, there is a limit to the help that is able to be provided. Just this week, I was talking with Jim about these concepts, and I have his permission to share this today. Many of you know that he's a mental health psychologist for the uh, Kentucky State Women's Correctional Facility for the women's prison down there in Kentucky. One of the things that he shared with me this week 
by his testimony that the only inmates who have experienced lasting change within their lives, any kind of genuine rehabilitation within their lives, are the ones who have found Christ. Everything else, at best, is a band-aid solution. At best. We need Jesus Christ. And, and so my challenge for us today is this. Do we believe that Jesus can make us clean? Do you believe that God's Word has the solutions to the problems that we face? Do we believe that if we put into practice what this book says and, and how it directs us to the Savior about how we deal with the, with the struggles that we face internally and externally, that it will produce the change that we're seeking within our lives? I can tell you with first-hand testimony how this book has transformed lives. I have seen individuals have victory over anxiety and depression. I have seen hot-tempered people learn patience. I have seen people break patterns of addiction to pornography and substances. I have seen that through the working of the Holy Spirit and his, the application of His Word. Is this book and Christ sufficient for you? <coughs> <clears throat> and those who have seen this level of transformation within their lives, each of them have come to Christ with open hands, imploring, kneeling, and pleading with their Savior, saying in faith, if you will, you can make me clean. In this text, Jesus worked an instantaneous miracle. He doesn't always do that. There are times where we go through and we struggle with our things. More often than not, He leads us through a process where we're drawn to continual dependence upon Him and His Word. So I'm not here to say that we can just snap our fingers and we just read our Bibles and pray and it's all done. It's, it's not easy. But what I am challenging us with, with, am challenging us with is this. Do you trust the word of the Lord? Do you trust him enough to come to him? Do you trust him enough to obey him when he gives instructions about the things that we're facing? Because here's the good news, and this is truly genuinely good news. Jesus is moved to compassion by our plight. He cares. He loves. If we would but come to him, we would see his transformative power on display. So if you've never come to Christ, <clears throat> if you've never come to Him for salvation, Jesus wants to do more than provide physical healing for you. He wants to save your soul. 
Right, this story, this as we're moving through this book of Mark, it, this is all building to a particular point in this book where all of this is, is directing us to the cross of Christ where Jesus is going to die for the sins of the world. And his message remains consistent. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will be cleansed. Believe that he paid the price for you. Trust in his perfect work for your salvation. And if you have trusted Christ for your salvation, are you trusting him for your sanctification today? Are you coming to Christ and, and seeking him in his way so that you may live as, as he has designed you to live in fullness of joy? Come to Jesus. He is willing. He will make you clean. Lord, I thank you so much for this text and the heart of Christ as we see on display here. <clears throat> We thank you for his power and his glory, his majesty. We thank you that, that Christ is at work. Lord, so often we go about our lives and we seek out wisdom from the world and we, we try our different methodologies and we end up shortcutting ourselves, missing out on the opportunity to see the transformative work of the Holy Spirit within our hearts and our lives. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to come and rest upon Jesus. pray that we would come to him. I pray that if there's anyone who is hearing my voice that is not trusted in Christ for salvation, that they would do so that they would see their need for you, have an accurate understanding of their plight, that there would be that desperation for cleansing from sin. And Lord, as we go about our, our daily lives, as we seek to, to live for you, as we seek to grow in our walk with you, pray that we would be aware of our utter desperation upon you and our dependence upon you every single day for of our lives. And that we would look to Christ and look to his grace, not only for salvation, but for our sanctification, our growth in holiness. And that you would work your perfecting work within our lives until the day of your return. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.